Our reading from Scripture today comes from the letter of Colossians, chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. While you're finding that in your iPhone or tablet or the old-fashioned way, turning a page, uh, just want to give thanks to God for bringing our Pastor Keith back safely from Columbia and blessing his trip there. Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing, excuse me, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May the Lord bless his word. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. We're going to wrap up this series this morning on worship with the subject event and every day. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we pause before we step forward into your word this morning and ask for you to be with us and bless us, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word this morning, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name, that you would incline our hearts towards your word and not towards selfish gain, that you would satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love, that we might rejoice and be glad all of our days. We pray that you would help us to receive the implanted word with meekness, which is able to save our souls. And we pray that you would set a guard over my mouth, help me to only say those things which are faithful and true to your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts together this morning would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask through Jesus, amen. Well, is worship an an event or is it an everyday lifestyle? Is it something we go to or is it something that we are constantly doing? Is what we do together on Sundays unique or distinct from what we do every other day? What's the relationship between Sunday worship and Monday through Saturday worship? Well, that's the tension we're going to explore this morning. Worship happens in two contexts. It happens in a gathered context, which is the context that we're sitting in right now. And worship happens in a scattered context context, gathered and scattered. And no, that doesn't have anything to do with how Waffle House prepares their hash browns. Okay. Gathered and scattered. In other words, worship is both an event gathered and an everyday lifestyle scattered. Worship gathered is the meeting of God's people to worship him, bless each other and witness to the lost. You remember those three audiences that we talked about a few weeks ago. Worship scattered is our Christian life that's lived out before others in community, on mission, before the Lord, in our workplaces, homes, and everyday stuff of life. Colossians 3, 16, which Dave just read for us, illustrates, I believe, both contexts for worship. In verse 16, we have the gathered context, and in verse 17, we have the scattered context. So let's just take a moment and root our thinking here in Colossians 3:16 and 17. It says, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, and that you is plural, teaching and admonishing one another 
in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, I don't think that's happening in any sort of scattered context, that they're just singing randomly to each other as they live each other's Monday through Saturday existence. This is a gathered time. This is a time where the, the body of Christ is gathered and they are teaching and admonishing one another. They are singing together. They are singing with thankfulness in their hearts to God. But notice, right on the heels of that, Paul adds in verse 17, and whatever you do, not just in this gathered context of singing and admonishing one another and teaching one another and allowing the word of Christ to dwell in you richly, but whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this thankfulness that's to characterize our lives, this worship that is to characterize our lives is to, ex- is to, is to take place in the context of gathering and scattering. We gather to express thankfulness to God and we scatter to live lives of thankfulness to God. Notice thanks is given in both verse 16 and verse 17. So whatever we do, whether we gather or whether we scatter, we are to do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, all for God's glory, all in a spirit of worship. So what I want to do this morning is walk through three headings for my sermon. The first will be the event of worship. I want to talk about what gathered worship is and why it's special. And then I want to go to the second part, which is going to be the everyday of worship. And then finally, we'll, we'll spend some time thinking about the experience of worship, which means how do these two kind of work together and feed off of each other? So first of all, the event of worship. Now, sometimes it gets, it gets downplayed in our day, the importance of gathering with the church. In the last probably 10, 15 years, maybe 20 years, it, this, this whole idea of all of life as worship has kind of invaded the, the modern evangelicalism. And so what happens is we say, well, all of life is worship. So, you know, Sunday is not any, any more special than Monday through Saturday, but that just doesn't wash with the Bible. So I want us to think about what makes the event of worship so important. What makes this gathering so critical and so important? Ed Clowney in his book, The Church, says that there's a difference between what we do to the glory of God and what we do in the special activity of gathered corporate worship. There is a distinction between what we do as in a gathered sense here and what we do as we scatter. So what makes this gathering special? Well, when the church gathers as a collection of people in whom God dwells by his spirit, God inhabits the gathered church because these scattered worshipers, all of us who are all individual temples of the Holy Spirit, gather together to make a greater temple. So when this temple gathers, something otherworldly takes place. Namely, the presence of Christ manifested in a unique way as we gather together as his people. We become an outpost of hope in a dying world, a fellowship of resurrected sinners, whose presence in this world is a foretaste of a greater resurrection to come. Christ in you meets Christ in me meets Christ in us. And that cannot be duplicated in any other way in any other context. Here's what Robert Rayburn says about the importance and special presence of Christ in in the gathered worship of the church. Listen to what he says here. He says, when there are a number of worshipers present, there is a participation in worship which is more intense than is the individual passion of any one of them when he is by himself. 
It is common knowledge that a mob is more cruel than any individual in it would be by himself. Similarly, the enjoyment of an elite company of music lovers at the symphony is more intense than that of a single music lover sitting by himself listening to the same music. God has so created man that there are deeper delights and more intense inspiration in the worshiping congregation than an individual devotion. So it's critical, the gathered church. It's not just critical because of the reasons that I've said. It's also critical because the Bible teaches it. The Bible teaches us to gather as the church for worship. And I want to look at three reasons the Bible gives us. So grab your Bibles and let's go to Acts 20 first. We're going to look at two texts quickly. Acts 20 verse 7 and 1 Corinthians 16 2. First of all, Acts 20. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So notice here, on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. Paul's letter to the Corinthians has this similar phrase as well. We'll start in verse one. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you, are all, you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So notice this emphasis on the first day of the week when you gather together, when you come together. What's that all about? Well, the first day of the week is a Jewish expression for Sunday. And it's a, sim- it's a similar phrase used in the Gospels to describe the day of the week on which Jesus rose from the dead in Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, and John 20, verse 1. All say that Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And what we see in the, as a pattern in the Bible in the New Testament is that the church gathered to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the first day of the week. And so when Christians gathered, they gathered for worship on Sunday, not Saturday in order to acknowledge the crucial importance of Christ's resurrection. So the main reason we gather every Sunday is because Jesus is alive. That's why we gather. We gather to celebrate the resurrection. In that sense, every Lord's Day is an Easter Lord's Day. We're gathering as a church today because Jesus is not in the grave anymore. You may not remember this, But as the news of Jesus spread and his resurrection spread, all of his friends spent the whole day telling each other the story and talking about what it meant. And it was a thrilling way to spend the day. And so they decided to do it again the next week. And every week ever since for 2,000 years, Christians have been gathering together on Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The day that Jesus rose from the dead is so special to the people who love him that we celebrate it every single week. We also gather not only to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, but we gather to remember the gospel. We gather to remember the gospel. Again, 1 Corinthians, if you're still in uh, chapter 16, just flip back to verse, uh, chapter 11. And notice... What we, what we see here in verse, verse 18, chapter 11, verse 18 of 1 Corinthians. For in the first place, when you come together 
as a church. So there's this coming together. There's this gathering of the church together. Why are they gathering? Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper was a regular part of gathered worship in the early church. And they gathered because that was the central means by which they remembered the gospel. They remember who Jesus was and why he came and what he has done for them. So we gather not only to remember the fact that the God-man rose from the dead on the first day of the week, but we gather because we need to be reminded that we have a great need for a Savior and we have a great Savior for our need. So every week we remind ourselves of the gospel as we rehearse it in song and preaching and prayer. Finally, we also gather to encourage one another. Go with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. And hear, the, hear again these familiar words in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So brothers and sisters, here's the reality. We gather with work to do. We've got work to do when we gather together. And the main work is we need to rehearse, remember the gospel. We need to celebrate Christ as raised from the dead. And we need to purposefully and intentionally seek to encourage one another. The author here wants us to meet together, to stir each other up and encourage each other all the more as we see the day drawing near. And the day that is in view here is the day of judgment when Jesus will return. So here we begin to see the necessity to keep each other holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering because Monday through Saturday, our hope is assaulted. Every single minute of every single day that we're awake, our hope is being assaulted. We're being called to hope in other things. We're being called to look to other things for our confidence, whether it be money or what's going on in our lives circumstantially. And what corporate worship is designed to do is in the midst of a world that's filled with temptation to sin and and all the suffering that's around us. And it's only going to increase as the day draws near. And we need to be reminded that though the world is teeter-tottering and wavering, that our hope doesn't, right? Our hope is fixed. Our hope is certain. And we need that recalibration to take place every single week, which is why we gather to help each other hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So corporate worship's not about a social club. It's not about coming together and hanging out and chit-chatting and all that stuff. It's a war zone where we fight sin and we fight the despair that comes into our hearts. It's not a place to make us feel a little bit better about ourselves so that we can check it off our to-do list and go get some lunch. This is a time, this is a lifeline It's a lifeline where we gather strength from God's people to keep pursuing Jesus no matter what the circumstances are in our lives. That he is worthy and he is worth it. And that's why we gather, to encourage one another and stir one another up. So that makes this gathering, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ, rehearse the gospel, encourage one another, absolutely indispensable. And we want to do it the first day of every week until Jesus comes back. So that's the importance of the event of worship. Now let's transition to talk about the everyday of worship. 
There is, again, an overcorrection that can take place when we only see gathered corporate worship as exclusive worship. There is no other worship that takes place apart from the worship that takes place on Sunday, which is just not true in the Bible. And we see this in at least three places. While we're in the book of Hebrews, would you flip over to Hebrews chapter 13 and we'll see the first illustration of worship as being an everyday reality and not merely a gathered event. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. Notice this language. Through him, that is through Jesus, then let us continually, not just on Sunday, but continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. That's an everyday thing. That's a sacrificial lifestyle of doing good and sharing with others and continually offering up to God praise and thanks. So there we see this everyday aspect of sacrificial thanksgiving, acknowledgement of God and who he is. So we see it in Hebrews. We also see it most probably popularly in Romans chapter 12. Would you go back to Romans 12 with me, and we'll look at those popular verses in verse 1 and 2. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So there, this continual offering of our bodies as living sacrifices to God, Monday through Sunday, every day of the week, continually. It's a day-to-day living living for Christ, our knees and heart perpetually bent in devotion and service to him. So we see... In Hebrews 13, this continual offering of thanksgiving to Jesus. And then in Romans 12, 1 and 2, based upon the mercies of God, which have been given to us in Christ, we live our lives for Christ day in and day out with our knees and heart bent to his will. And perhaps the most popular text, we won't turn there because we've already turned to it a number of times in this series, but it's John 4, where Jesus comes up on the woman at the well and she has all this geography issues with worship. And worship takes place here at this time on this place. And he just blows up her category for worship altogether. And he says, worship is not so much about a place as it is about a person. It's about me. It's about, it's about worshiping in spirit and truth and being a true worshiper and a true disciple of Christ. It has everything to do with the fact that you're living with a man you shouldn't be, you're not married to. That's false worship. And that's where he goes with her, not to her argument about whether or not she should worship on this mountain or that. So for the Christian, whatever we are doing, whether it's serving the poor in Guatemala or serving the nursery or flipping hamburgers or flipping channels, all of it happens in union with Jesus before his eyes in the presence of a loving God who by a miracle of boundless grace receives each and every act of ours, though offered with mixed motives or frailty of heart as a pleasant and acceptable offering to him. That's why we are to continually, in the language of Hebrews 13, which we saw, offer ourselves to God. Of course, this is most popularly expressed in 1 Corinthians 10.31, that whatever we do, whether we eat or drink, we're to do it all to the glory of God. 
Here's what Bob Coughlin says about that. He says, everyday worship means doing the things God commanded us to do and avoiding the things he has forbidden, all with a heart that seeks to please and reflect the Savior whose death on the cross has rescued us from condemnation. It's loving our spouse and children. It's serving others. It's spending our money. It's helping the poor. It's driving our car. It's going to school. It's working our jobs, all in ways that draw attention to the greatness and goodness of our God. So biblically speaking, there is no sacred, secular distinction in our lives. Every moment is an opportunity to worship God. Every day is for worship. Martin Luther puts it this way in his own inimitable way. The worship of God should be free at table, in private rooms, downstairs, upstairs, at home, abroad, in all places, by all people, at all times. Whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. And if you've read anything about Martin Luther, you know he's not a guy to pull punches. So he basically says, anybody tells you that worship isn't being done every day, they're liars. And they're, they're as good as the devil, which is not very good. Whoever tells you anything else is lying as badly as the Pope and the devil himself. Only Martin Luther would say things like that. So that's the everyday of worship. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time unpacking the experience of worship. So we've seen the event. We've seen every day. I hope you've seen it in the scriptures. Now let's talk about how these two relate to each other. How does the event of worship relate to the every day of worship? Well, here's, here's what I want to say about that. I would argue that the gathered worship of the church feeds our scattered worship by building us up and equipping us to live in the power and wonder of the gospel, able to persevere in the midst of whatever we're going to face this week, whether it be trials or joys, but likewise scattered worship. That is Monday through Saturday when we're not here, when we should be walking with Jesus day in, day out, living for him, whether we're driving our car, working our jobs in our families, in our neighborhoods, that, that, that scattered worship feeds our gathered worship as well as each of us brings our growth, our maturity, our suffering, all to the gathering. So worship scattered and worship gathered go hand in hand, shaping and informing one another in the life of each of us as worshipers. And one without the other will inevitably be weakened. So gathered worship, what we do here on Sundays, feeds Monday through Saturday, and Monday through Saturday should feed the gathered worship. How would that look? Well, during the week, we live lives of worship as we love our families, as we resist temptation, speak up for the oppressed, stand against evil, work hard, earn a living, proclaim the gospel. But we grow weary in that. Every single week we grow weary because we experience setbacks and difficulties and things never turn out the way they, we envision them because we live in a fallen world. And nothing ever is going to go completely right. But as we grow weary in our battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil, we need to be strengthened and encouraged by God's word and the care of other saints. So we gather together to receive that encouragement and blessing and help. But there is a danger in overemphasizing either one of these to the neglect of the other. For instance, if we overemphasize corporate worship, we can begin to think it's the only point of our Christian life. And Sunday may be the high point of the week, but it's not the only point. 
Here's what Mike Cosper says about the danger of overemphasizing corporate worship to the neglect of everyday worship. He says the following, such an attitude that is of seeing gathered worship as the main thing, such an attitude loads up the worship service with burdens it simply cannot carry. When a one hour worship service is our only encounter with God's presence, we will intuitively become much more demanding of that gathering and divisive. Did you get that? If this is your big time with Jesus, you're going to be really bothered by anything that happens that you don't like. Because this is your time with God. Because after all, he's not available to you Monday through Saturday. uh, Continuing with what Cosper says, song selection, for instance, is much more loaded concept if Sunday morning is my sole sacred hour with God. I'll be much more picky because the decision I disagree with or don't particularly love robs me of my intimacy with God. A brokenhearted friend who asked me for prayer would be guilty of pulling me away from the Holy of Holies. Everything about the service becomes sacred, and if it's done poorly or not to my taste, it's not just a matter of preference or opinion. It feels more like heresy. By contrast, if the gathering is about building up and encouraging the church, then a song I don't like presents an opportunity to love and encourage others whose tastes differ from mine. A needy friend is an opportunity for me to participate in the work of the church, listening, praying, and building him or her up. Distractions, errors, and cringe-inducing moments in the service aren't disasters on a cosmic scale because worship continues throughout the week. Jesus continues before God's throne, and I can join him anytime. So the point of what Cosper's saying there is not to say that the gathered worship isn't important, but if we put all of our eggs and all of our devotion in that basket, then this has got to go exactly the way I want it. Otherwise, I just don't feel near to the Lord. And Jesus is on the throne and he's available to us. You can join him there anytime. That's Cosper's point. So the, while the gospel transforms all of life into sacred space because Christ dwells in us and we dwell in him, this frees us from expecting too much from the gathering and yet it compels us to the gathering. But it compels us with a spirit of deference and humility and joy And we keep it all in the larger perspective. I mean, this is one and a half hours of our week. And some of us are way too bothered about what happens in it. As long as it's not an issue of faithfulness, it should not get our underwear significantly in a bunch, to use a phrase. But it should be an issue where we can defer and enjoy the differences that God brings to our gathering by the virtues of the giftings that he's placed within each of us. But there is also a danger. I don't want to just pick on that side because we've got to go to the other side and pick on the other, other people too. It's got to be biblical and fair here. Um, there is a danger in emphasizing individual worship to the neglect of the gathered worship as well. And um, what we see here is if we, if we neglect preaching and emphasizing the importance of the gathering and make it all about all of life is worship and we scatter and we worship every day, then sleeping in on Sundays isn't a big deal, is it? And missing church for whatever reason doesn't become a big issue because we can worship Jesus in the woods just the same way we can worship him in the gathering of the church. And that's not true. 
Here's what Bob Coughlin says. The truth is we can study our Bibles, we can read Christian books, we can sing worship songs, we can pray and commune with God in the privacy of our own homes, and we should. But we're easily deceived by our sinful hearts. God has so designed the church that it's impossible to grow in godliness and know the fullness of his grace apart from the church. That's humbling. It flies in the face of our self-sufficient and self-reliant tendencies, and that's why we need the church, end quote. So I think the application here is we, we're faithful, and you all are faithful. I mean, you, for crying out loud, you, you, you bore through the elements this morning to get here. And, uh, but the point is, is that it's important that week in, week out, that barring sickness, you know, something uh, you know, significant coming into our lives, that we, that we don't miss Sundays. That we make it a point to gather with the church. And I know we're going to miss Sundays. We're going we're gonna to miss them from illness or travel or vacation. But, and sometimes work. But we need to keep these to a minimum. And don't plan all your getaways over the weekend so that you miss out on your own church for most of the summer. Or don't let the kids' activities crowd out Sunday services. Or don't let homework or football or too much rain or too much sun keep us from gathering with God's people for worship. We just need to commit right now. And I know most of you are already committed to this, but we go to church period. We gather as the church period. And that's not, that's not because individual worship been good enough. It's not going to cut it. One feeds the other. I think Harold best beautifully expresses the link between gathered worship and scattered worship. When he says to say that we go to church to worship is a little bit misleading We are continuing worshipers and we gather ourselves together to continue our worship. Only now it's in the company of brothers and sisters. You see that he holds those tensions together. He says, we are perpetual worshipers. We continually worship, but on the, on the Lord's day, the first day of the week, we gather ourselves together to continue our worship. But now in the company of brothers and sisters, corporate worship then is a particular expression of a life of perpetual worship. So if we view worship as not primarily or fundamentally as an activity, but as an identity, which is the way our mission statement views it, we view ourselves as worshipers. We are a gospel-centered community of worshipers. Worshiping is part of our identity because we're trying to recognize this idea that we continually and perpetually worship, and one day a week we gather ourselves together as the church to corporately express that and worship together. And I think this is why language is really important. I've probably tripped up on it a couple of times, even in my own, even in the sermon this morning, but the fact that corporate worship is to be coexistent and coextensive with all of life suggests that care has to be taken in the way we speak about it. So to call our public meetings, worship can unwittingly kind of, communicate something we don't intend to communicate. And that's why using terms like corporate worship or believers worshiping together or Christians assembled in worship or worship as the gathered assembly of believers or the congregation assembled in worship. Let's just keep it simple. Corporate worship can be, you know, corporate worship, gathered worship, things like that. But that honors the fact that we're not just worshiping when we're here. We, we have gathered worship here, we have corporate worship here, but we perpetually worship as we leave here as well. Now, let me conclude 
with just a few takeaways. And I, I just want to conclude with some takeaways from the whole series. We've looked at a lot of tensions in uh, this series. We've looked at the tension between God's greatness and God's nearness, head and heart, the importance of right thinking and right feeling. We've looked at physical expressiveness. We've looked at planned and spontaneous. We've looked at the vertical and the horizontal aspects of worship, the idea that worship has three audiences, not just one. We've looked at all these different tensions. And let me give us just some concluding takeaways from the whole series about some ways that we can implement this in our lives going forward. Since the series is stopping now, we're starting Ephesians next week, and we'll be in that for March through May, then we'll take a break for the summer and come back September through November and, and finish the book off. But uh, we'll be in Ephesians for a while. So since, since we're going to be wrapping up worship series this week, let, let me just conclude with a few of these takeaways. First, if you haven't embraced tension in worship as a biblical necessity, I want to encourage you to do that. Work, tension, these tensions that exist as we worship God are biblical necessities to hold to. And if we don't hold to them, most of the issues surrounding worship are going to be skewed because we're going to be thinking about worship in a either or kind of dichotomy way versus a both and harmony kind of way. Most of the issues surrounding worship and the arguments that people have about worship and what it, what it, what's to characterize it, not talking about biblical principles or anything, but the, the way in which worship is sometimes conducted. I'm talking about corporate worship now, not, not, a, not scattered worship. But if we can't hold to those tensions and appreciate those tensions and value those tensions, then stuff's going to get stuck in our crawl a lot. And I just want to encourage you to embrace those tensions. Secondly, I want, you, I want to encourage you to recognize which side of the tension you tend to be on. I hope that's been somewhat revelatory for you as you've gone through this series. Like, oh, that's where I tend to gravitate. You know, like when things get a little bit more emotional, I don't like that. I'm more of a head person than a heart person. Or I like the vertical more than the horizontal. Or plan more than spontaneous. Or, you know, whatever. Greatness more than eminence. Or uh, every day more than event. Or whatever. You know, you just recognize what aspect of the worship pendulum you tend to swing on. And then I want to encourage you to cultivate a spirit of humility and deference to those who fall out on the other side. Because in this gathering this morning, there are people that fall out on different ends of that spectrum. And that's good. It's not wrong to have that particular bent. It's wrong to be sold out on that bent and demonize the other side. As though your, your particular bent was the way of faithfulness. So the way of faithfulness is holding these tensions together and expressing it through a spirit of unity in the church. So we've got to recognize which side of the tension we tend to be on and then cultivate a spirit of humility and deference to those who fall out on the other side. And mainly be preoccupied with our own hearts and not have a condescending or judgmental attitude toward others. Third, believe that the Lord will want to go to work on that area you tend to not find as natural or comfortable as part of his ongoing work of grace in your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are all the worshiper that God has created you to be? I know that when we get to heaven and we sing that revelation song, we are going to feel like good grief. I think all of us are going to feel this way. What a small worshiper I was. You know, like I didn't give Jesus near the praise and glory that he deserved. We're going to feel like, oh man, wouldn't it be great to close that gap just a little bit before we get there? 
You know, and so we want to grow as worshipers. We want to grow in, in, in the areas that don't tend to fit with our natural bent because lo and behold, God is trying to form Christ into us. And that's not going to be all that's natural and all that's comfortable to us. And so where we see scripture encouraging us along these lines, we should press into it with faith and hope and pray that God will change us and help us and we'll grow over the months and years and decades. God gives us life ahead. So I just encourage you to do that. Make it a goal. You know, press in, press on to grow as a worshiper and not be content with the level of praise that God gets from your life right now, especially in our gatherings. And then finally, fourthly and finally, I just want to encourage you to keep the main thing the main thing. None of these tensions are the main thing. The gospel is the main thing. And to the degree that we fix our eyes and our focus on the gospel of Christ, that he has lived in our place, that he has died for our sin, that we have been forgiven and counted righteous and adopted into his family. And to that degree that that grips our lives, grips our hearts, empowers us, fixes our gaze, focuses us, reorients us, becomes our everything, our all, this, uh, this other stuff will get worked out in the wash. It really will. It'll get worked out in the wash. But to the degree that the gospel's not of first importance to us, but other things are, good grief. You're setting yourself up for a host of discomforts all throughout your life, which is why Paul told us, keep it first importance. The gospel is of first importance. And so we have to be able to distinguish between what's the main thing and what are secondary things. And let's keep the main thing, the main thing. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the time together to consider all these tensions that we've considered the last couple of months. We pray that you would help us to grow as worshipers, that we would grow more and more um, to, uh, to enjoy and to praise and to be equipped by you and by your spirit to more faithfully um, reflect back to you the worth and glory that you are due. Um, We pray that the gap would be closed more and more so that what we are becoming and what we will be will not be all that great a distance um, when we meet you on that great day. Until then, help us to celebrate you and to worship and to live lives that are marked by this rhythm of gathered and scattered worship until you come again, Lord Jesus, and make all things new. We pray that that day would come soon. In your name, amen.